I have Soren Hansen here. I'm a chemical engineer. I've worked all my life in private industry, and now I'm retired and active within a small association in Denmark, which deals with the, the climate. My speciality within the organization is the the change over to net zero and the green revolution and so on. So the title of my presentation is Renewable Energy, Why Wind and Solar Will Not Work. What we see here is a typical demand for power, could be anywhere in the world, where we see there is a variation over the 24 hours. We have megawatts out here. So it's somewhere between 5,000 and 7,500 megawatts. Actually, these figures are from an official Danish report where they simulate the future. So it's not something I've made up. But this is what it looks like during the night. It is lower, and then during the day, it increases, and there's a peak around 5 o'clock in the afternoon when people come home and start preparing their food. So this is a demand. Now, the way it will be met in a traditional way is you have your power plants, could be nuclear, coal-fired, gas-fired. So you would have a base load, which are power plants that basically do not change very much. They're down here at the bottom in gray. Then you have some which are maybe a little more flexible. They could also provide some district heating. And finally, you have the power plants, which supplies your peak load. And they have to follow the demand 100%. You cannot produce more power than needed. You cannot produce less. If you do, you get a blackout on your network immediately. So the, the art of producing electricity is that it has to match the consumption at any minute. If you switch on a small light bulb, then immediately the power plant, in theory, will have to turn up the, the power a little bit. Okay, so this is a picture. Now... Here we have the output from wind and solar. And this is from the same government simulation. And you can see, this is the red curve. You can see in the morning, it's very low, there's nothing. Then it picks up from eight o'clock and onwards, it picks up. And around 10 o'clock, it matches exactly. So here at 10 o'clock, we have exactly what we want. We have the match between the consumption and the production. But the rest of the day, we don't. And this, of course, is not suitable in itself. You could say I picked a bad day, but no, every day looks like this. Here you have a three-week period. The red curve is the production from wind and solar. The blue curve is the demand. And they never match. Yeah, once or twice a day, and that's it. So sometimes you have a huge surplus of power, and sometimes you have a deficit. And that has to be tackled somehow. And this is basically the same picture, but now it's for the whole year. Now, the point is that the amount of power generated in total from wind and solar in this example matches the total consumption over the year. But they don't match minute to minute or hour to hour or day to day. But the total figures for the two matches over the year. We have many problems. As you can see, sometimes we have more power, sometimes we have less power than is required. The real dangerous periods, if you wanted to have a clean solar and, and wind uh, supply, are what the Germans call Dunkelflauten, which means the dark doldrums, which are periods with very little sunshine and very little wind. And this is from December last year. The demand is the brown area, and the production from wind is the blue, and then you have the small peaks from solar. Denmark and Germany and the other northern European countries are so far north that we don't really get any solar energy in the winter months. So here you can see the problem. You have a almost more than three-week period where the production is very low and the demand is as the demand normally would be. You actually also have a red line at the top, and that's the installed capacity in Germany. They have 130,000 megawatts installed, and you can see for days, Friday the 9th, Sunday the 11th, they get less than 5,000 megawatts, which is 1 or 2% when it's worst. So this is a big problem, which means that whatever system you set up based on wind and solar, you need additional equipment which can handle a period like this one here. So what do we do? 
we are not allowed to use nuclear power, at least not in Denmark. Germany scrapped the last three nuclear power plants they had. They're not allowed to emit CO2. So then what are the solutions? I will go through some of them, not all of the solutions or remedies which are being proposed. But one of them, of course, is you have to have a more flexible demand. Instead of now production having to match the demand, it should be the other way around. The demand should match the, the production, whatever we get. Then we have the idea of regional cooperation. If only we cover a big area and they are connected with big electrical cables, then one area will be able to support the others when the wind is low and the sun is not shining. We have biomass. And finally, we have the whole issue of energy storage. So we'll go through these one by one. The first one is a flexible demand. Here I've taken the same three-week period that we saw at the beginning. And I've taken the demand and added, respectively, subtracted 10%. You cannot reduce your demand by 50% or 60%. Far too much of the power consumption has to be met all the time. Hospitals, public transportation, trains, street lights, whatever. So basically, 10% may be up to 20% under certain circumstances. But that's it. And you can see that this change in, in the demand gets us nowhere closer to meeting the, the production. So demand flexibility will only be a very small help. Then we have the regional cooperation, and I made this very simple sketch of five fictive regions, A, B, C, D, and E. Each of them have a average demand of 20 gigawatts, and each of them generate what they need, 20 gigawatts. So this works out fine. And this is, incidentally, the way it was before we started with solar and wind. Basically, each country would supply, and in the US, it would be each state supplies their own energy. Now, if now this area C suddenly loses all production, then we have a deficit of 20 gigawatts, which means that the other four could chip in each an additional 5 gigawatts and cover the demand. That would require some cabling, but still maybe that will work out. And this is how people see the situation. For instance, in Europe and also in the US, we get back to that. They think that this is what we will do. Because if one area has no wind and no sun, then the others will be able to chip in and help. But now what happens if four out of the five regions have no power? Then poor A will have to supply for everybody which first of all means that you need some very big cables. These are, we are talking, really expensive installations and maybe over long distances. And second of all, region A will have to have a generating capacity five times the normal, which of course is a huge extra investment, which most of the time will not be used, but in a case like this, it will be needed. So here we see some of the difficulties. But is it really like that? Could we risk that a big area has no power? Well, this is from the US, December 2020. How much did the wind turbines generate in, in this month for all lower 48 states? And you can see that the maximum was reached on 23rd, around 80, 80 gigawatts. And we had some minimums down around 15. So if we had set up our wind turbines so they could cover the whole demand, it's obvious that, that, yeah, late December, it's maybe okay, they can cover the needs, but early December, they cannot. There will be a huge deficit. So what happens is that these periods of low wind will hit a very large geographical area. They will hit all of Northern Europe. They will hit most of Europe, actually. And as you can see here, they will also hit the States. So what do we do then? If all over, there's too little wind. Everybody can only generate five gigawatts and we need 20. Well, nobody can help anybody else. So geographical cooperation definitely has its problems also. It will be very expensive to invest in and also it will not really solve the problem. Then we have the biomass. We saw this three week period in the beginning, the unbalance between the demand and the generation. 
And here you can see if we had biomass fired power plants who should make up the deficit, you will see how they should operate. It will be up and down between 5,000 megawatts and nothing for some periods. So this would be difficult to operate, but, but in principle, not impossible. Now, the problem is that in this case, and this is a future scenario for Denmark, the requirement would be a total of 120 petajoule, which per person would be 20 gigajoule. And you say that for average for the whole world, we can allow ourselves a consumption of 10 gigajoule. And that's, of course, because that it is limited how many trees we can cut down. It's limited how many fields we can use for energy production. There are many limitations. And if you calculate on a global basis, the IPCC has stated that we can reckon with around 10 gigajoule per person. But we, we cannot make do with 10 gigajoule per person. We need a lot more to back up our system. And if we have a bigger system, we need even more. So biomass can be a supplement, but biomass does not solve the problem either. Okay, then we have to store our electricity. And there we know we have batteries, we can produce hydrogen and store, and we also have power to X these electrochemical fuels. And let's take a look at that. Batteries is basically very good technology because they will store the electricity directly. Whenever you have a surplus, you put it in your battery. Whenever you need some, you can take it out again. And there are not that big losses, maybe 10%, 15% in losses going back and forth. So batteries is, is basically technologically a good option. But batteries, I think many people don't really realize that when you talk about these huge batteries, like we saw in the picture before, they're actually composed of small cells. Cells the size that you would put in your electrical appliances at home, flashlight or whatever. And then when you need a big battery, you just combine a lot of these. So a 60 kilowatt hour car battery will contain 6,000 cells. And then you can calculate if you have a 300 megawatt hour battery, how many cells you need then. And all these batteries then have to be combined and they have to be put up with cables and connections and control systems and so on. So it's a very complex situation. So how would that work? Well, this was a slide that we saw in the beginning. You had the, the blue curve was the consumption, the red curve, the production from wind and solar. And in the morning, when we have a deficit, we would have to discharge our battery. And in the afternoon, we could then recharge it. So that would look like this. Then in the afternoon, we would charge the battery. And how much power do we actually need? This is something that people confuse also quite a lot. Because you have to differentiate between power and energy. Power is measured in, in this case, in watts or megawatts, and energy in megawatt hours. So if you have a system where you are generating, say, between five or 500 megawatts and zero, and you have a demand around 400, then you can see that your battery will have to kick in when you reach around eight o'clock in the morning. And it's 16, four o'clock in the afternoon, then you start having power again, and your battery will be relieved of its duties. And then you can calculate how much do we actually need. We have 400 megawatts of deficit for eight hours, and by multiplying these two figures, you get 400 times 8, which is 3,200 megawatt hours. So whenever you see that now this battery has been put up and it is so many megawatts, it doesn't really tell you anything. What you need to know is how many megawatt hours can it store. And here we have an example. This should be the largest battery, grid-scale battery in the world, Moss Landing in California. It has a capacity of 400 megawatts and a or power of 400 megawatts and energy capacity of 1,600 megawatt hours. And this looks huge. Come on, this is going to solve our problems, isn't it? However, the average power consumption in California is 30,000 megawatts, which means that the demand per hour is also 30,000 megawatt hours. 
which again means that Moss Landing can cover 1.3% of the power need and 3.2 minutes of consumption. It is getting us nowhere, even with this size. Somebody sat down and made a comparison of the demand and the supply from wind and solar in some future situation in, in California over the whole year. You can see wind and solar producing less in wintertime, more in summertime, and less again in, in, in the end of the year. And the demand is more stable, but it has a peak in the summer months where you need a lot of air conditioning. So this is a picture. Now we'll say we'll put in a battery that will compensate us for the differences all the way through. And how would that look like? Well, here again, you can see when we had a de deficit and when we had a surplus. So that's basically the two curves we saw before, one subtracted from the other. So the, in the first months of the year, then a surplus, again a deficit, and at the end of the year. That we can translate because we can add up, hour by hour, we can add up, so how many megawatt hours did we need in that hour? And when we do that, we get a curve like the one in the bottom. And you can see since we started with the deficit, we need some starting capital on our battery, uh, which is in this case 12,000 gigawatt hours. Then it will drop down to zero in March. And then it will increase because now we have this long period of a surplus. And after that, gradually it will more or less stay up there and then it will get discharged towards the end of the year. And we end up at the same point where we started. And when you have a curve like this, you can actually tell how big should my battery be? Because my battery should be able to cover. Now, this line must never cross the zero, because then we don't have power. And the top of the curve will show us how much do we need. In this case here, it was 25,000 gigawatt hours for that year in California. Now, you have to realize that one year is not the same as the next year. There is a considerable variation. So if you say, OK, I want to build my California battery, I could not just say, okay, we'll take 25,000 gigawatt hours. It would have to be bigger, maybe 30,000. So how much would that cost? Well, grid-scale projects cost in the period 2013 to 2018 around 1,500 US dollars per kilowatt hour. The latest contracts have, according to my information, been made at around 600 US dollars per kilowatt hour. Now, we can pause here for a moment because everybody is telling us that batteries are getting cheaper and cheaper. Soon we will get below 100 US dollars per kilowatt hour. Yes, but that is only for the batteries themselves. These costs here included all the equipment that you need to connect the batteries, to control the whole installation, to make the cabling in and out, etc., etc. That's why you have considerably higher prices. And now the price of lithium is actually going up. So we should not be too optimistic regarding the price. So we can build our we can build our battery for California. We can be nice. We will not add anything extra. So we'll say it is the twenty five thousand gigawatt hours, which turns into twenty five billion kilowatt hours, and the total investment then would be fifteen trillion US dollars, which is four times the gross domestic product of California. And no matter how you scale it for a whole country, for a whole region or whatever, this is the price range we're looking at. We're looking at multiples of the gross domestic product. So batteries is a problem also. There are other storage systems based on molten salt and hot stones and so on, and, and all of them have the problem that the energy losses are very big. So on paper, they might be a bit cheaper than batteries, but in the end, they will not be. So we will leave those aside. But then we have hydrogen. We can use our power from windmills and from solar cells to produce hydrogen by a simple electrolysis, basically just water. We put in two electrodes, and then up along one electrode will bubble the hydrogen, and in the other one will the, the oxygen. It's a simple process. It's been known for many, many years. Hydrogen is an interesting material or interesting fuel. Here's a small comparison for a hydrogen-powered car, the Toyota Mirai. 
you will have a range of 600 kilometers for both sets would be 400 miles. That would require for the gasoline tank, well, the pressure would be one bar. The volume would be 40 liters. The weight of the fuel is 28 kilograms and the total weight of fuel plus tank is 40 kilograms. Now, hydrogen, in order to be able to store it reasonably, you need to increase the pressure tremendously. And basically what the Toyota car is doing is operating at a hydrogen pressure of 700 bars. You have to go deep down into the ocean to, to meet a pressure like that. Even at that pressure, the volume will still be 150 liters, almost four times that of the gas tank. And the weight of the fuels, you only have five kilos of hydrogen in there, but it has a lot of potency, of course. And the total weight of the whole installation is 87 kilograms or around double the, the car. So hydrogen is not easy to handle. That's quite obvious from here. Another issue you have is the loss of energy. Because we mentioned before regarding the batteries, there's very little loss of energy. But if you use hydrogen, there is. The electrolysis will take away 20 to 30% of your power that you feed in from the mills and the solar cells. You have another 15 to 20% loss in the handling and storage of the hydrogen. Because just to compress hydrogen to 700 bars will cost up to maybe 10% of the power or the energy contents of the hydrogen. And finally, the handling and so on and getting it into the car and the efficiency of the car, you're down to a total utilization of your original energy of around a third. So that's a big energy loss. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we need a lot more wind turbines and solar cells and everything in order to be able to, to feed our cars. If you have an electric car, the loss is only 10 to 20% all told. So that is basically a better idea if we're talking about cars. There is a safety issue with hydrogen. Leakages, it tends to leak out of anything you could imagine, even steel pipes and so on. And once you have it leaking, then there's an explosion risk. And this picture here on the right is actually a hydrogen explosion. It's very violent. You can store it under the pressure I mentioned before. You can also liquefy it and store it as a liquid, but that requires a temperature of minus 253 degrees centigrade, very close to the absolute zero. So that is also difficult. So we have handling problems with the hydrogen. So the logical next step would then be to combine it with something else and make what we call power to X. And we have many possibilities. We can combine it with CO2, and then we will have, we can produce gasoline, we can produce methanol, and we could produce methane gas if we want that. Now the CO2 may be a little bit of a problem, we get back to that, but then you could also combine your hydrogen with nitrogen, which you can take out of the air, and then you can produce ammonia. So here we would have four fuels which are much more easy to handle than the hydrogen itself. And methanol you can store in a tank like gasoline and just pump it out like you do in, in a normal gas station. Power to X. Here I give an example of methanol production. And here you, would, you need your power from your wind turbines and solar cells. You will then produce hydrogen by electrolysis. And then separates, and this can be geographically separate also, you have your production of CO2. And the best thing is to extract it from a smokestack, from a power plant or industry or whatever, where you can take the flue gas, which has a high concentration of CO2, and then you can separate it out and you can transport it, say, by a tank car or pipeline to your reaction. Then you react the hydrogen with the CO2 you get a mixture of methanol and water. You need a distillation step, and then you have your methanol. And the energy loss is something like 50% compared to your original input from the wind and solar. You also need some heat for these processes here, and that, of course, has to come from somewhere. Now, if you don't have, if you have closed down most of your industry and you don't have that much biomass-filled power plants, 
then you can also extract the CO2 from thin air, which they have projects going on right now. And that is a very energy consuming process and very expensive, but it is being discussed and openly considered that that could be a solution. Um, so now we have our methanol. Here's a plant in Denmark. It's still proposed, but of course the politicians and everybody are extremely happy. They're planning to have two gigawatts of electrolysis. The average consumption of the plant will be 1.2 gigawatt. They want to have their own power supply by three gigawatt of wind and one gigawatt solar installed capacity. And they are dreaming about producing 1 million tons of fuel per year. This is the power supply they can expect from their wind and solar, their local windmills and solar cells. And as you can see, it looks like the pictures we saw before, up and down all the time. Here we take a small extract, 25 days, February, March. Producing methanol is chemical industry. Chemical industry needs very stable operating conditions. So basically, this plant should operate at this 1.2 megawatt on average, and that should be stable. Now, obviously, it is not stable because sometimes you have a lot more power available and in other times you have a lot less. So what do we do then? Well, turns out that they have their wind turbines and they have their solar cells, but they also expect to be hooked up to the national grid. And that could give some stabilizing influence. At least for the methanol synthesis, this is absolutely crucial. That would never work with a power supply that, that uh, sort of is all over the place. The electrolysis may be, and that is really a problem that has to be solved. How do you make electrolysis on a ever-changing power supply? I haven't seen any, anybody do it yet, but that is a problem that has to be solved. Otherwise, we can forget about all power tricks. So basically, they will then store the hydrogen, and then they will produce the, the methanol. But if we, want, if we want to run based on this outside supplies, then you can see here how much the outside network should supply to this plant. And it is somewhere between zero and 1,100 megawatts. And that's quite a lot because this is just one small power to X plant. There are plans for five, 10 more maybe just in Denmark. And if all of them were hooked up and all of them demanded power from outside like this, it would be a lot, lot more than we are producing, a lot more than our consumption. So we have, we have a problem here. Okay, the solution could be if we realize this technology where the electrolysis follows the production more or less. It has to be stepwise because electrolysis, like all chemical industry, needs time to adjust and to stabilize. But something like this might just be possible, might, but we don't know yet. And you will still have some peaks of power that you don't really need for anything. They have to be handled somehow. So power to X is considered a key element in backup of wind and solar. And the reason is that we saw the problems with batteries, we saw the problem with hydrogen. So only the power to X, which you can store in tanks and then use to run power plants, backup power plants, would be a, a viable solution. And also, you need the power to X fuel for these purposes, which cannot be electrified, like ships, like aircraft, like maybe heavy trucks and so on. So you need a lot of, of fuel in a, in a net zero future. So the final issue that I want to, to mention here is the cost of the energy. We have a, a term known as LCOE, levelized cost of energy. And there we are being told now solar and wind are the cheapest of them all. So just the market forces will drive the whole development towards wind and solar because it's cheapest and the market will always go for the cheapest. And we will see graphics like this one shown here, where we have, this is the scale is Euro per terawatt hours, again, Euro per unit of energy. Uh, and you can see that the wind is low, the solar is even lower, gas power a little higher, 
but not too much. Coal power, a lot more expensive, and nuclear also. So what's not to like? Of course, you should drop nuclear and you should go for wind and solar. At least that is the, the uh, attitude here in Denmark. But the LCOE is basically only a combination of the investment, fuel costs, and operation costs. Operation costs are whoever have to keep an eye on the stuff and do whatever maintenance is required. And of course, for wind and solar, once it's put up, there's no fuel cost, and the operation costs should be rather limited because they look after themselves. But of course, there is a substantial investment. But this is not the whole story. And this is what uh, German energy economists, Cowan Smith, have been pointing out. They've written a very interesting book on this topic. They say this is only part of the story, because you also have the cost of a complete solution. We saw this geographical cooperation require transmission lines going from here and there, and also just to combine all the, the wind turbines. Maybe they're sitting out somewhere remote or in, uh, in the sea or whatever in the ocean. You need all the transmission lines. You need backup, some kind of system, power tricks, hydrogen, whatever. And maybe you need some storage also, smaller batteries. So that has to somehow to be added to the costs of any solution. Then you have the indirect costs, which are environmental costs. Nothing is, uh, has, has no costs in this case. Cost of decommissioning, once you have done with your wind turbine or your solar panel, you have to take them down and get rid of them in a nice way. Also land use, because we know that wind turbines take up a lot of space. If you make a wind turbine park of a certain size, it will take up maybe 100 times or more the space required by a nuclear power plant, having the same capacity. So all these things have to be added up somehow. And Shani and Smith have not done it yet, because they say there are a lot of a lot of preconditions that you have to decide on, presumptions that you have to decide on, and that, that is a difficult exercise. But we also have some points where no money is involved, but which are of interest also in this respect here. And one is the material input. The other one is the energy balance, the return of energy invested. And finally, the lifetime of the plant. And here is the material input required. And now we see a picture which is a little different from the one first one we saw. Coal, gas, and nuclear. Again, this is tons of materials per terawatt hours produced, per unit of energy produced. So you can see that coal, gas, and nuclear don't really require that many materials. Hydro, hydroelectric power requires more because you need a lot of cement for the dam. But I guess that's acceptable because afterwards it will produce a lot of good energy. But solar is the top score. Solar panels, because they per square meter, they will supply so little energy that you need a huge amount of materials to get a or to obtain a terawatt hour of power. Wind is a little better. And finally, we have geothermal, which we'll not mention here. So here the picture is very much different. So the final point is the energy return on the investment. And this is quite an interesting concept because the whole idea is in order to build a wind turbine, I have to invest some energy. And afterwards, the wind turbine will supply me some energy. So what is the relation between the two? And back in the good old days, 2000 years ago in the Roman Empire, the return on investment was around two. What does that mean? That means that one farmer and his animals could produce food enough for himself and his animals and another person and his animals. Which means basically that half the entire workforce was employed in the agriculture section in order to supply food for the rest. So that is a EROE of two. We have to remember when we are talking about the transition to green energy that there's a lot of work going on in connection with the mining of the materials, the smelting of the steel or copper or whatever we need, 
the workshop building of all the machinery, and finally the, the erection on site and the installation on site. So there's a lot of work here. There's a lot of transportation in between trucks, ships, dumpers, etc. And all of this today is working on fossil fuels. So the whole transition to green energy is based on fossil fuels, enormous amounts. And the more we want of wind turbines and solar cells, the more fossil fuel we'll have to use. And then we can say, okay, so what is the balance between the what we get, I mean, the consumption of energy when we produce these things and put them up compared to the energy that they will produce afterwards. And here we have to consider again our electric system. If we want a electric system based entirely on wind and solar, then we will need a lot of additional equipment. Because as we've seen, we need energy storage, we need uh, surplus to cover geographical differences, we need a lot of things. And basically you can say, first of all, we need more windmills and more solar panels than on theory we, we would require. We need an oversized grid. Because as we have seen, sometimes they produce near to capacity, and that's a huge amount of electric power. A lot of times they don't produce very much. But our cables, our high-tension cables, transmission cables, should be able to transmit the whole amount, the maximum amount. There's a lot of expensive cables. Then we will use some of the power, of course, will go directly to the consumers, but then we will use a lot for hydrogen, electrolysis. We will handle our hydrogen. We will collect CO2 either from the air or from some remnant industry or whatever. We'll handle the CO2. We will then produce our power to X. We'll restore our power to X. And finally, we will have a backup power plant run on, on the power to X. And this backup plant should basically have the same capacity as our solar and wind. Because we saw these case in Germany where solar and wind gave almost nothing. Then you need to replace everything with your backup power. So you can see when you look at this system here, Actually, we could make do with the backup power plant if we could just feed in fuel from the outside and then scrap the rest of all of this. So what is the energy return on investment in practice? Well, this is a scale where there's no figures here because it's, it's just relative, but it's just to, to illustrate the situation. And this is again, thanks to Shani Cowan Smith. The lower acceptable limit is five to seven. Below that, you need so much effort to create your energy that it is not really seen from an economical perspective. It's not really very interesting. So the Romans were at two, and two would get us nowhere. So what does it look like then for us? Well, if we build a nuclear power plant, we are up at 70 maybe. So it takes some energy to build it, but after that, we get a lot of energy. Hydroelectric is very good also. Coal and gas is fine. It's far above the lower acceptable limit. And even if we are scared of CO2 and we want to install CO2 removal, then still it will be it will give a nice return on the energy invested. Wind and solar without all the extras but just the necessary cabling and transforming and so on is already below the lower acceptable limit. It's down around four. And if then we add everything we saw on the previous slide, then we are down at the Roman level. So what does this actually mean? It means that net, we do not get any energy out of our wind and solar when this system has been fully built up. And if we want to increase our energy production by building more windmills, more solar panels, we will get nothing out of them energy-wise. So what is my conclusion? If we look at the future roles of the energy technologies, I don't believe in solar and wind. I think that when people 50 years or 100 years hence look back on our times, they will say, what on earth were those people thinking of? when they built all these wind turbines and solar panels. Biomass 
is limited by nature, by whatever capacity the, the Earth has to, to support it. Hydro, as much as possible, is the ideal form of power. Norway were producing 100% of their power needs, and it's a highly electrified country by hydro. And the cost was something below one cent per kilowatt hour for many years. Now they've been integrated with the rest of Europe, and now it's going bad, but that's not the way it used to be. Fossil fuels we can continue to use. I don't believe in any climate crisis, so I would not hesitate to continue using the fossil fuels, especially gas, which does not give that much of emissions of CO2. And there's plenty out there available, so we can continue until we have managed to build something else. And that something else in the long run will be nuclear and hopefully also fusion if they succeed one day in realizing that technology. And that was basically the whole show. If you look ahead like one or two centuries, how do you think we're going to be powering civilization? We're going to have nuclear power, but how are we going to meet or match demand with the supply? Is it going to be just nuclear plants or anything else? I think it will be primarily nuclear. And, and by then it will also be fusion. And if at that time you are running out of oil that is liquid fuel, then you can produce it using the power to X technology, but based on nuclear power, which can give you the stable energy supply that we don't get from, from wind and solar. So I think that in the long run, we will get all our power from nuclear processes. And then I think that power or energy will cease to be a political topic that has to be discussed. And then in that future, we're going to be powering planes with the power to X, starting yeah. with nuclear power? Yes. Okay. Yes. But you see in that far future still using hydro? Oh, yeah. Or, oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. As much as possible. I mean, right now in, in Africa, for instance, they have a huge potential for hydro. And they have a lot of need for power. But unfortunately, European and maybe also U.S. environmental groups are doing what they can to block these projects. And that is really a shame. I had another question about the scenario you mentioned with trying to power everything with wind, solar, plus biomass. We yeah. still only had about half as much biomass as we would need. Was that like planting trees as much as we could and just burning as much biomass as is available? Still, we only have half as much as we need in that scenario, right? Yeah. I mean, as long as we have to provide food for all the people in the world, 8 billion and, and counting, then there will basically not be that much land available for, for energy production in the future, at least not in the near future. We have to maintain our agricultural production to avoid the famines. So I'd like to compliment you on just a very clear presentation. I really enjoyed that. That was a gem. Actually. Just this morning, I was giving a very short presentation in Copenhagen regarding the, the last five or six slides, the, the, econ the economy, the cost of, of energy. And there was one interesting question coming up there, because I said that if power supply or energy supply based on wind and solar only gives us this return on investment of two, like the Romans, uh, he said, couldn't we make do with that? Wouldn't that work? And then I told him, and this was, it was a group of eco economists, so I mean, they, they, they knew a lot. So I told him, yes, but what this means is that if your return is only two, then you will have every second person in the world will be working in energy supply. And he didn't understand that. He said, well, why? I said, because producing energy, the cost of producing energy at the end are salaries. If you have a coal mine, what is the actual cost? The coal doesn't cost anything in itself. You can take it out for free, but it's all the people handling the coal, taking it out, handling it. It's all the people who produce the machinery that you're using in your coal mine and so on. But at the end of the day, it is salaries. And if you have an economy which is based on an energy supply with an EROE of just two, that means that every second person will have to work with energy supply. And then you can try to figure out how wealthy would, be, would we be in that case. We would not be. There would not be people available for every other services and whatever we want.
But they, they try to spin that as a good thing though, right? We have 8 billion people and we have, we'd have 4 billion people working in wind and solar trying to supply electricity and power. That's supposed to be a good thing, but it's clearly not. Yeah, but they would have, they would have a standard of living which is way below what we have today. Because the reason why we have a, a high standard of living is that we have a very efficient production of energy and also of all kinds of other stuff. And that we could not continue if most of the workforce is, well, tilling the lands like the old Romans, almost, yeah. So I am curious, you have given this in public a few times then, and what sort of feedback other than that are you getting? Uh, I think it's great for you to lay it out like this because I think a lot of people just haven't thought about it and they haven't seen the numbers. Yeah. People in general are shocked um, because they believe, and even our politicians believe, that if just they fill up, for instance, the North Sea, you know, the, the ocean between Denmark and Great Britain. If you fill that up with wind turbines, you will always have power. There's so much power out there, and, and you will always have power. But even I have figures showing the situation in the whole of the North Sea. It's exactly the same as we see in this California example. Sometimes you have power, sometimes you don't. And it fluctuates wildly from day to day. And we have no systems that can handle that. The interesting thing is if you look at Danish politicians, because they say, yeah, but we have big percentage of our power supply today is produced by wind and solar. So why wouldn't that work to expand that further? And I tell them, this is a question I've had also, I tell them, well, we are saved by Norway and Sweden. Norway have hydroelectric power, which does not depend on the wind and the sun and Sweden has nuclear power. And they give us power every time our own systems fail. Sometimes we even get a little coal-fired power from Germany. But we cannot count on going on like that. And if we want to electrify the whole country and use electric cars and all the heating should be electric and so on, then we will need more power all the time. We will need more backup whenever solar and wind fails. And nobody can deliver that to us. These, these systems that I've sort of outlined here, there are people now calculating for the whole of, of Northern Europe. What would it look like? We have a climate council in Denmark that just issued a report where they try not just to look at Denmark isolated, but also Denmark plus imports and exports from, from abroad. And the conclusion was that it will not work. We either need very flexible demand, which is not realistic, or we need some kind of storage, which is not realistic, or, as they write, we need some gas-fired power plants for backup, which means that then we're back to square one. Uh, in your diagram, when you're talking about this wind and solar utopia, you do need wind and solar power to make wind turbines and to make the backup power plant and all that other stuff, right? That's figured in there? No, that's a problem. Because as I said, all the installations that we have today are made based on, on fossil fuels, which means that in the future, if you want to have everything based on wind and, and solar, then you would have to use power to X, for instance, in your steelworks, as fuel in your steelworks. And, and for, for, for the mining, you would need electric vehicles or, again, power to X. So you, you would need a huge volume of power tricks. And that huge volume would require more windmills and more solar cells and more of everything. And, and only in that situation, you could say, then we have reached net zero, which is the goal of, of whatever. So maybe you know the answer to this question. Do you know of any modern factory, for example, in the entire world that's completely powered by off-grid wind and solar without being plugged into anything else? I, I don't, but... No, I'm no yeah. never heard of it, no. Doesn't it seem like we'd at least want to get that going before we try to make the entire world powered by wind and solar? Maybe exactly. start with one factory and prove that yeah. works? Yeah. That would be nice. And and that is what I think is, is a bit dishonest. These project developers in Denmark, they always end up being hooked up to the national grid. And then it's somebody else's problem. I mean, constantly here in the U.S., we're seeing claims that the like Apple data centers are 100% powered by green energy. But yeah. to me, that's just a straight-up lie. They're just pretending yeah. they're doing it, but they're not. Yeah, no, no. what they do is they, they buy these carbon credits, which is a huge business. 
where you have, there was this company called Vera, they just lost the CEO due to some irregularities. But they had, they claimed that they were preserving rainforests in the third world. So rainforest that was about to be cut down, they stopped that and, and did something else instead. So that is CO2 that has been saved and that you can buy if you are Apple or Microsoft or whoever has enough money, they can buy these carbon credits and then they can claim that they don't emit any carbon. We have in Denmark, we have a project now where they will pick up CO2 from a Dutch power plant. They will ship it to Denmark. They will put it on a boat, sail it out to the old oil fields, which are not used anymore. And then they will store the CO2 down there in the depth. And that costs a bundle. And I mean, it will never, I mean, storing carbon dioxide underground does not generate any value whatsoever. So how is this financed? Well, there are two sources. One is public grants, of course, but the other one is Microsoft, who buys these tons of CO2 having stored underground, and then they will offset whatever CO2 emissions in Microsoft's activities will result in. It's huge Sorry, business. I missed that. Are they actually doing that or they're talking about doing that in the future? They are. They are. It has been agreed. And I think that they are very close to shipping the first load out into the North Sea. Yeah. I wonder what's the total cost per ton of doing that by the time you figure out the cost of shipping it on the boat. and It's got to be... Well, we are talking in the range of, say, 300 to $500 US dollars per ton. Because you're probably aware there was the Chicago Climate Exchange that went bust maybe 15 years ago here in the US. And those yeah. offsets were going for a nickel a ton back at that time. But now it's, it's $300. Yeah, that, that's a cost. The, the, there are a lot of processes involved. You need heat for the, for the actual separation process. Then you need to cool down and pressurize the CO2 so it's liquid and then you can put it on the ship and then again you need to pump it underground and you have all the monitoring and transport and whatnot. It's expensive. Thanks a ton for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for letting me doing it. I appreciate that a lot. I like all to right. get the message out.